Hello, I'm Regina Botras and welcome backstage where we talk with theatre makers from actors, directors, writers, theatre heads and beyond about their life in the theatre and how they got to be where they are now. And my guest backstage is the award-winning dancer, choreographer, performer and teacher Dean Walsh. He's made over 45 works which include both solo and group works. He's collaborated and performed with various companies including One Extra, Big Bang Theory, uh, Sidetrack Performance Group, Australian Dance Theatre, DV8 and he's been commissioned for major national and international festivals. He's been awarded the prestigious Robert Heltman Scholarship and is here to talk with me about his life on the stage and off the stage and where he's come from and what he's doing now. Welcome to Stages, Dean Walsh. Hello. Hi, Regina. Thanks for coming on. I'm just so, going to up yes. the front, if it's okay, yes. that uh, I was diagnosed as being on the spectrum in 2016 and six months later living also with ADHD. And this on top of really quite extreme complex trauma that I knew I'd already had all my life. If I uh, do tend to go a little bit too fast or I speak too loud or in a droll kind of tone, please do interject. I just like to have that access need said it no worries. Well, tell me before we get into that diagnosis and how that affects your work practice, tell me about early life. Were you born into a creative family? And because I know you didn't come to dance till you were 20, right? From what I read. Yeah. So what was life like growing up then? Without going into it too much. So I mentioned before complex trauma. So I stem from a lower working class background. When my mother and father were together, that is. I was born in 1966. So these are two very young people. My mother was 17 and my father 18. Back then, they they you know fell pregnant with me. So, of course, it was the Church of England and very staunch Catholic. They both came themselves from quite a lot of domestic violence. On my father's side, it was my grandfather who put his age up two years to go and fight in um, Papua New Guinea towards the end of World War II. They were known as the Chocolates boys that would melt in the heat of battle because they were given like two weeks to prepare. Within six to eight weeks of him fighting up in Papua New Guinea, he uh, mortified hit his foxhole and blew all of the kids to pieces. So it was a really horrible situation. But he came back, married my grandmother, and then on my mother's side, there's a whole other horror story there of her being in a convent. So she was part of the state for a little while and grandfather on that side they were more sort of middle class stock but um, family fell apart huge family too many kids so two kids basically having a first child with a huge amount of domestic violence and other violence and violations committed to them trying to hold it together out in the back of Mount Druitt and starting to build up a life out there when it was still the sticks really and I remember Mount Druitt uh, for about the first seven years of my life It was just domestic violence every other day and, you know, really extreme stuff. So I remember having to, you know, tackle my father down before I even barely, you know, I was was five or six years old, tackling him down and having to bite in the back of his neck and, like, just total Mm. outrageous violence. But my mother as well, being very, very volatile herself, would fight back Mm. because I've made works about all of this too, Mm. of course. So... That was the sort of childhood <laughs> I had. But when we moved to the Central Coast to, in, you know, I'm quotation marks here, 
in uh, to start a new life. Things got worse. Another man came into the family who was he was horrible. He was a sexual abuser. Mm. The volatility just turned into madness because there was a whole underworld, you know, which I only learned later, an underworld culture. So he was basically a mobster. And um, quite recently found out that he was actually involved in the whole Abe Saffron circle. <laughs> So quite really. Horrible. Oh gee, oh yeah. gee. So so it was that. So I, without going into too much detail, there the volatility that then ensued. I saw a lot of all of that being the eldest, and you know, people sometimes just don't understand that when when we say that we need to talk about complex trauma, what we're doing is trying to talk about the need to stop violence against children, women and children in the home, but also other men in the home or boys kids children and how can you do anything apart from just try to survive in that kind of environment right yeah and also look you know there's a lot of creativity in survival Mm. there's a lot of creativity in moving through and trying to work through horrendous physiological mental and emotional turmoil and this is where i think there's this beautiful segue between the creative arts and healing from, well, let's say specifically childhood trauma. So as a dancer, finding dance by chance at the age of 20, I went to the Sydney Festival. A friend, a girlfriend of mine said, you're gay, you're gay. And I was already secretly going to queer clubs underage and dancing and being a go-go dancer anyway. So she just made me own it. So I think I was like 17, maybe 18. Friends took me to the Everest Theatre to see this, you know, Ampont Le Terrible, uh, uh, Michael Clark and company. Suddenly there are these queers on stage, fully balletic, with all of these phalluses and beautiful, and doing this huge queer balletticized wedding ceremony. It was just phenomenal stuff. And I, my jaw just dropped halfway through. <laughs> I was in tears, like, what's this? So, I then went and saw it again. And so then from there on in, it was like, well, you have to go down to the Bowdoin Visa Dance Centre down the road there. You have to start up dance. So it took a year and a half. Margaret Chappell, the director of Bowdoin Visa, who's another phenomenal human being that I hold very dear to my heart forever because she was also somebody who said, look, you have so much creativity booming inside you, wanting to get out. And she even sat down and would listen to some of this stuff this is why in my work now I what's the word I lead by what I found to be most insightful, which was Chappie, she was affectionately known as being just so able to hold space with people's own contexts and to not put you down, but to invite your specific. She just led by such beautiful skill of sensitivity and awareness. So what did dance, like, how does dance help you then? I I know you've used all, like you said, these themes and your experiences all through your work. Is it cathartic or is it more than that? Is it also helping others through it? Like, what is the, do you think, the importance of dance and that experience? Yeah, such a good question. Because now in my 50s, I maintain that the arts are more than just striving for artistic, aestheticized excellence. There's just more going on. 
I started in dance, yeah, but I was already dancing at the nightclubs and I was already doing a lot of hours, like I say in this piece that's coming up at the Sydney Fringe Festival called Context is Everything. It's a performed archive, hour and a half. So I'm super stoked because it hasn't been easy to get work up the last five years. And just quickly on that, that's part of a, a bigger archival project called Dancing Sydney, Mapping Movements, Performing Histories, that Julianne Long from Macquarie University, Amanda Card from Sydney University and Erin Brannigan from UNSW kind of um, got together with the New South Wales State Library and Critical Path, the National Choreographic Research Centre in Rushcutts Bay. And so they selected, I think, about 14 or 16 um, choreographers, movement performance makers that have more than a 20-year history in Sydney, mostly, and were all being archived last through a few years. So it's a massive undertaking. So it's not just Sydney Dance Company and, you know, Bangara and Sydney Theatre Company and all those other bigger... More independence uh, yeah. documented, which is terrific. Because we do come from so many different diversities, right? Mm. And we're always ahead of the game because we're jumping in, like throughout my career, I've always done an outreach mm. of some description, like with it, whether it be younger, um, whether it be friends dying of HIV and groups dying and getting classes in yoga and movement awareness, embodied awareness, some description, so that people felt that they were, mm. you know, even on their last legs where they could, able to move and express themselves and breathe and, you know, let quite emotional to be living with certain things and suddenly find that you can move and open up closed places in your body. Mm. Um, there's so much research coming out and all of that, including Parkinson's and how dance and music is you know, those neural pathways and those proprioception mm. aspects being awoken. When you look at that history of yours, spanning over 25 years, 30 or what, this 30 year. This year. <laughs> I was going to ask two questions. How have you seen your work change? But also, what have you observed seeing the change in like, the industry? So it's a pretty amazing moment, I've got to say, but it's kind of arrived well, because COVID's happened, it's sort of interrupted it all again and mm. delayed it all. So it's now been going, this archive project, for four years. They wanted it all done and dusted in, say, two years. But, of course, we're all over the place and we're all running to do other things and catch up mm. and postpone works and, you know, and most of us are still current in some way, whether we're now teaching full-time at university in dance and dance theory, dance history, or we're running companies. I'm very specific in my profound leadership abilities, and that is dance, improvisation, composition, leading people in really unorthodox research, like all of my marine embodied awareness work that mm. has been happening since I got the Australia Council Fellowship in 2011-2012. I've come to realise now that all of these multiplicity of different avenues are all in dance or contemporary performing arts and other art forms because I'm also quite good at you know composing music for instance myself or I'm a visual artist as well and not too bad at cutting a video together so I started using all of those to teach mm. kids that might be coming from say domestic violence themselves people living with disability I guess that ability that I have to be good in a lot of things is the way that I've survived so I've 
tried to always do some kind of outreach because it keeps me away from just being, I've never quite liked the, say, the national dance community itself. I have found some of it to be very, very close-minded. Uh, you know, a good 90% are from middle-class, well-to-do situations, not saying that that means there's not other things that they need to live with, but it has really made me feel on the outer a lot of the times, especially because by default I was making works mm -hmm. from a very early age when I first, my teacher again, mm -hmm. Margaret Chappell, was very into saying, you know, encouraging me, mentoring me to be a choreographer. After that, it was quite interesting because everybody and whenever I'd audition kids for at different universities, it was all about, oh, they haven't got a good point or they haven't got, they're not getting the time. And yet I could see creativity behind these mm. kids that the others weren't focusing on. I'm going, so why is this? Mm. Why does dance do this? Mm. Why does it not look at the human being, the whole artist? Mm. Why does it tend to just look at the aesthetic and the ability of somebody's point what's technique. the point was always my thing mm. so yeah <laughs> technique. I mean that's there but and of course things are very are quite different in that area these days but I guess for me it was by default I was bringing in the stuff that I was moving through including AIDS like I had two mm. boyfriends die of AIDS and uh, another lover pass away and god knows how many friends you know it was that horrible time in context to Many of those friends were also from quite disrupted um, boyfriends, especially were cut from disrupted backgrounds too, all hating ourselves, all kind of lost in this fuck and where do we belong? Sorry, sorry. But this horrible place of, you know, we just survived that and now we've got all of this. 